Hey guys. Cool. All right. This is uh this is definitely the strangest arrangement that I've ever preached in front of. I'll try to I'll scoot back a little bit and then try to look to my right and my left because Lord knows Ryan Garcia needs to apply this message. Alright. Well uh <laughs> really? Yeah. Okay. I'll, it'll, I'll touch it and it'll go down, but that's okay. Um, Terrell was right. My name is Morgan Maitland. I'm the high school pastor at Faith Bible Church. I'm trying to look around and see if I see any unfamiliar faces. Uh, most of you are familiar. You guys are around the church, um, which I'm thankful for. Thankful for our college ministry. Thankful for an awesome ministry that we can send our seniors to. And we have some of them with us today, which is cool. Glad, to, glad that you guys are a part. You guys are becoming a part of this ministry. You guys may already know the story of Desmond Doss. Um, his story was made popular by the movie Hacksaw Ridge. Uh, Doss enlisted as a medic in the Second World War, but he refused to carry a rifle. Uh, motivated by his religious beliefs and some bad past experiences, he was a conscientious objector. <coughs> Doss uh, says this, and I quote, With the world so set on tearing itself apart, it don't seem like such a bad thing to me to want to put a little bit of it back together. Desmond Doss found himself in one of the bloodiest battles of World War II. It was the, uh, the Battle of Okinawa. And Doss's battalion was ordered to advance on Hacksaw Ridge, this notorious ridge, 400-foot cliff. And at the top of it were Japanese machine gunners and a bunch of booby traps. It was a, it was a big setup. So Doss's battalion uh, advanced on this ridge, got up the ridge, but found out quickly this was an impossible mission. They weren't getting any further. Many men wounded, many men lost. And uh, after just a, a bloody battle, finally, uh, Doss's battalion was ordered to retreat. They got the orders to retreat. But here's the funny thing about Doss. Doss refused to leave the battlefield. Why? Because there were wounded soldiers still alive out there in the kill zone. And Doss found it his duty to go back alone without a rifle and save those men. And so Doss would go back and forth from the battlefield to the ridge to lower down one man at a time. If you've seen the movie, this is a very intense scene. So he's lowering one soldier at a time. And it was said that every time he would lower a soldier, he would pray out loud, Lord, please help me get one more. And he'd go back to the kill zone under fire and grab another soldier. Uh, it was estimated that Doss saved an estimate of 75 men that day. 75 men without a gun, going into a kill zone, pulling a soldier out one at a time, risking his life for his fellow soldiers. Now I want to ask you, College Ministry of Faith Bible Church, do you love one another as much as Private Doss loved his fellow soldiers? Do you love one another as much as Private Doss loved his fellow soldiers? Soldiers, will you give yourself to bear the burdens of others? Anyone in this room? Are you in the trenches with these people? Are you suffering with them? Are you caring for those who are wounded? Are you praying for those who are going through difficult times? 
Do you love enough? Do you love others enough to get dirty? To stay tired, to sacrifice your comfort, to bear their burdens and restore them to the safety of Christian community. Do you love one another enough to bear their burdens and go out and restore them from their sins? You may not know this, but this is your duty if you profess faith in Christ. As a Christian in the church, it's your duty, it's your obligation to do that as a believer. And Galatians 5 and 6 tells us that. So thank you, Terrell, for reading, but you, you guys are already there. Galatians 5, we're starting in 22, and we're going to go through 6, uh, verse 3. I, and I see two main imperatives in this passage, and they're in chapter 6, starting in verse 1. The first imperative is to restore. The second imperative we see in this section is to bear. That's in, chap, that's in verse 2. So restore a person who's caught in any trespass, and then number two, bear one another's burdens. Now, these two commands are only fulfilled in Christian love. You can only fulfill these two commands in Christian love. And why do I say that? Well, I say that because if you look at verse two, you'll read kind of an interesting section there. It says, bear one another's burdens. Look down at the Bible. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Now, what is the law of Christ? What is the law, law of Christ, and what does it have to do with love? Well, if you remember back to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22, you'll remember what the law of Christ is. Here it is. Somebody asked him, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall what? Love, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall what? Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, you shall love God. You shall love others. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So what is the law of Christ? Well, summarized, it is to love. To love. So here's my summary sentence for this passage that we're going to look at. And then we're going to ask three questions. My summary sentence is that God's love moves us. God's love moves us to bear the burdens of others and restore those who are caught in sin. You must do this and you must be motivated by God's love. God's love moves us to bear the burdens of others and restore those who are caught in sin. So what does this look like? We're going to ask three questions, okay, of this passage. And this passage will give us the answers. If you're taking notes, the first question is, who is responsible? Who's responsible to bear the burdens of others and restore those who are caught in sin? Question number two, what is the goal? What's the goal of all this? And number three, how is the goal accomplished? So those three questions, who's responsible, what is the goal, and how is the goal accomplished? Accomplished. Number one, who is responsible? Who is responsible? You could ask, who's responsible to obey these commands, to bear one another's burdens, and to restore the person caught in sin? Look at 
verse, uh, verse, verse 1 of chapter 6. It says, Brethren, if in, sorry, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Now, there's the answer right there. Who's responsible for fulfilling this command? It's you who are spiritual. You who are spiritual. Now, that phrase right there can be misinterpreted in some bad ways. Okay? You might think, because it's just the natural reading of the text, you who are spiritual, and, and you're putting your American context to, to bear on this passage, you're thinking, well, these are the level up Christians. Right? There's certain levels in Christianity. There's the newly saved there's maybe the person who's now serving in the church. There's maybe now the discipleship leader, the ministry leader. And then on top of that, the elders. You, you think maybe there's some levels. And so when you see the, the spiritually, or sorry, those who are spiritual, you might think, well, that's a mature Christian. That's the level of Christian. I mean, would you guys admit that maybe that's what you thought looking at this passage? Those who are spiritual? Cool. Nobody. Alright. Well, this is a common misinterpretation of the text. Um, now, there's two problems with it. I think on the one hand, it could be a spiritual cop-out to responsibility. On the other hand, I think it could be a fake license to kill <laughs> for, some, for some other people. What do I mean by that? Let's, let's talk about the first misinterpretation and how it could be misapplied in your own life. It could be used as a spiritual cop-out to think that, well, it's just the mature people that have to bear burdens and uh, restore people out of sin. Um, and so you kind of forsake your own Christian responsibility. So say, here's the situation. friend is caught in sin. And you, if you fall into this category, you might think, conflict is uncomfortable for me. Getting involved is probably not going to help as much. I don't have enough Bible knowledge. I don't have enough experience. Someone else will help this person, someone more spiritual. Maybe I'll leave it to the elders, the ministry leaders, the senior staff in the college ministry. They're more godly than me. They're stronger than me. They're better looking than me. They're cooler than me. They have better hair than me. They're better equipped. What does it even mean to be equipped? But they are. They're more equipped than me. But, but it's kind of a spiritual cop-out. You're trying to push responsibility off of yourself. When this text could very well apply to you. See, the motivation behind that isn't love. Love isn't motivating that. You might just be uninformed, ignorant of what this text or who this text applies to. But most of the time... What that's motivated by is a prideful insecurity. A prideful insecurity. You're, you're, instead of loving others, getting outside of your comfort zone, and restoring a person who's caught in maybe some ugly sin, maybe bearing hard burdens that another person is carrying, instead of doing that, you're protecting your comfort. Maybe there's a fear of failure. Maybe you want to avoid necessary conflict. Uh, you know how I know this, is this was me. This was me. I'm this person. I, I do not like conflict. 
conflict. I, I'll, I'll my, naturally, in my flesh, I will try to avoid conflict as much as possible. And really, at the core of it, it's just a prideful insecurity. I don't want to push myself out of my comfort zone. I don't want to put on the burdens of others, but just want to stay comfortable. So you can misinterpret this passage and think, okay, bearing burdens and restoring somebody who's in sin, that's for somebody else. I don't want to get my hands dirty. I don't want to get involved in that. So you kind of think, view it as a spiritual cop-out. Here's the other way you can misinterpret it and then misapply it. You can use it as a fake badge or a fake license to kill. What do I mean by that? Well, some might interpret this text and use it as a license to kill. You, you see the phrase, you who are spiritual, and you think, oh, just quickly, that's me. I'm the spiritual one. Five years in faith, serving in college ministry, serving staff, senior staff. I know all the Bible answers. I've been through the TC. I am smarter than most of the people in this room. Uh, I've read most of the books out in the college library. <laughs> Me, I am the spiritual one. And most often with this person, if it's, it definitely if it's motivated by pride, your, your friend isn't caught in sin. You go looking for sin, right, in their life. And you, you, you pick out little things to poke at. It might be the purity police, the Bible bruiser, the sin stalker. Jump on anybody and everybody who has that quick stank on them. They got that sin stank. And it's usually veiled with an imposing question. Hey man, I know you weren't at college group last Friday. I noticed that your, uh, that your Bible bookmark was in Proverbs 9. You know, the adulterous woman. Are you struggling with pornography? And the guy's like, dude, it's March 9th. I'm reading Proverbs a day. Last Friday was my grandpa's funeral. No. Or maybe you're like, hey, dude. Or, uh, you know, girls, you're like, hey, I noticed that you were tagged. I was just scrolling through Instagram. I was minding my own business. <laughs> I saw a picture of you tagged with Brad. I don't know if you noticed, but Brad, last week, posted a Joel Osteen quote. <laughs> Are you about to date a false teacher? <laughs> this is the person who, who's just, who's just looking for a way in, uh, usually confronts sin. This is a person who usually confronts sin without offering any help out of it. Um, it. You just want to be in the know. You want to prove your suspicions right. Uh, pridefully compare yourself to, to others, the sinner. It's a fake license to kill. It's the badge you wear as being more spiritual and now having the ability to then go out and use that, uh, maybe use that status or that level to really just get out others. And it's not motivated by love. Most often this is motivated by pride. It's an ego boost. You're promoting yourself as spiritual and degrading others as less spiritual. Um, you might be spreading gossip under the veil of, I'm genuinely concerned for them because they're walking down a dark path. I'm, I'm, op I'm lifting them up in my prayer requests in this big group because, man, they're, they're just making some bad decisions. And, and you're, no, you're not. You're, you're, you're promoting yourself and using their sin to do that. Um, 
you have to be very careful when you pridefully confront sin in another person. You have to be very careful with that. Matthew chapter 7, remember what Jesus said. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, there's a log in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take out the log in your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And remember this. God's love needs to motivate us, move us to bear the burdens of others and restore those caught in sin. You have to always check your motivation. And I'm going to come back to this later because it's definitely relevant in this text. If your motivation isn't love, then it's not helpful. Not helpful. So those are two like opposite extremes of how you can misinterpret this. But let's go back to the question. Who really is responsible? Who are those who are spiritual? Well, I read, uh, in, I read some of chapter 5 because it's important here to see the context. Go back up to chapter 5 and look back up at verse 22. Who are these spiritual people that need to be bearing burdens and restoring? Look at this. Verse 22 of chapter 5. But the fruit of the Spirit, you guys know this, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Now, brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual. Who do you think those spiritual people are? those walking by the Spirit those walking by the Spirit those living out the fruit of the Spirit this can be any believer any believer filled with the Spirit walking by the Spirit displaying the fruit of the Spirit this is you this is you, professing believers those of you who profess in Christ and, and say that, man, I have, I have been washed by the Savior. I believe in Jesus Christ, what He did for me on the cross. I am a new creature, a new creation filled with the Holy Spirit. You, brothers, sisters, are responsible to bear one another's burdens and to restore those who are caught in any trespass. Whether you're a weak, new in the faith, or you are seven years, eight months, two days, in the faith. We all have a responsibility to each other. First of all, first of all, to walk by the Spirit. Here's my question. Are you ready to fulfill your responsibility, college student, in this ministry, in this room, to each other, to bear one another's burdens and to restore those who are caught in sin? Ask yourself that. Are you ready to fulfill the responsibility? First qualification, are you walking by the Spirit? Are you walking by the Spirit? Are you walking in submission to God, according to the will of God, displaying the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, goodness, gentleness, self-control? Second, do you have the right motivation? Are you motivated by love? That's a qualification of those who would bear burdens and those who would restore people in sin. And then third, here's... Here's a question that we should ask. Do you know the people in this room well enough to help them out? You know, this text, it's the, the implication is that there's already community happening here. Brothers, 
Even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. Bear one another's burdens. Paul's writing this letter to the church in Galatia. This is implied they're in community. Do you know each other well enough to do this? Do you know the burdens of the person sitting next to you? The person in front of you? Your friend in the group? Maybe more than your own group of friends. Do you know the burdens of all the people in this community? Not just the ones you hang out with. Do you know enough to know if they're in trespass or not? If they're stumbling in sin? Do you know how they're doing in their walk with the Lord? How, how they're doing in their devotion with Him? Do you know them well enough? And listen, this isn't going to be just cultivated with, with frisbee, ultimate Frisbee events and barbecues. Like You have to have intentional relationships. You have to be meeting regularly and getting to know each other and, and really living life on life together. You need to have those kind of relationships. So it goes both ways. One, are there people in this room that you are bearing burdens for? Are there people around you that you are bearing burdens for? It goes the other way too. Are, are you letting people into your life to bear your burdens? Are you being open, honest, and vulnerable with them? Like John talked about on Sunday. Who's responsible? All of us who walk by the Spirit, believers filled with the Spirit, displaying the fruit of the Spirit. Number two, what's the goal? What is the goal? So what's the goal of all this, of fulfilling these commands? Well, the goal is in the command. Look at verse 1. Brethren, if, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. The goal is restoration. That's the goal of church discipline, by the way, right? Matthew, Matthew 18. The goal is that they would be restored to fellowship. They would be restored, first of all, to God and their relationship with Him, and then they'd be restored with others. The goal of church discipline is restoration. The goal of us catching somebody in a trespass is not to just confront them, but it's to restore them. Restore them. Think of, think of uh, falling in the ditch as an illustration of it. Somebody who has been caught in sin, they've fallen into a ditch. Now, your goal is not to be the person that walks by, points at him, and goes, you've fallen into a ditch. <laughs> Did you not read the sign? Don't fall into a ditch. <laughs> well, I encourage you to read the sign again and try to find a way out. But, and then you walk along. <laughs> That's not what we want to be. Our, our goal is not to just confront them. Um, and, and that's made clear by this passage. And that's often our first response, isn't it? When we see someone in sin, if we, you see a friend who's in sin, it's really personal to us. We're like, I need to tell them. I need to tell them right now. This is getting on my nerves. They are clearly disobeying these five verses in the Bible. And I am ready to spit those things at them. Confront them in their sin. So when you approach the person, you confront them in their sin. You tell them what they're doing wrong. You add the five Bible verses to it. And then what? Well, sometimes you'll walk away frustrated. Because it seems like they didn't listen to you. Why? Well, because you spat five Bible verses at them, and then you walked away, expecting them to change in five seconds. Expecting them, expecting them to repent from sin in the five seconds that you met with them, or the five minutes that you had with them. Or maybe you're left in a pickle, because they do respond humbly, and they go, you know what, you're right. 
I, I was totally walking in this sin, and uh, you totally called me out, and I'm really struggling with it. Actually, I need help with it. Can you help me? And you're like, duh, 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 uh, Ephesians 5, 2, uh, and then you walk out. <laughs> You don't, you don't actually stick it out, endure through the hardship, work it out with them. And guess what? This is going to take more than a meeting. This is going to take more than a conversation. It's going to take work. It's going to take time to restore this brother, to restore this sister in the Lord. It's going to take some effort. And you know what I think? Personally, I think we should remove the word confronting from our vocabulary. I think we should remove it. Unless you are a pastor confronting a false teacher. Then you can use the word confronting. You have to be sharp with them. But I think rather we should use the word restoring. Like when you think about a brother or sister who's in sin, and man, they are walking down a, a wrong path away from the Lord. Your goal is not to confront them, but to restore them, right? You don't want to just leave them in the ditch. You want to figure out a way to pull them out of the ditch. That's the goal. Restoration. Bring them back. You want to bring them back to their relationship with the Lord first and foremost. But you also want to bring them back to community. Bring them back to relationship in the church. When I think about this, I'm reminded of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. This is a display of love. This is a display of love. Jesus says this in Luke 10.30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. They stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, the Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. By the way, a Samaritan would never do this uh, according to the Jewish culture. They would never see a Samaritan helping a Jew. But needless to say, this Samaritan came upon him. When he saw him, he felt compassion. He came to him and he bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. He put him on his own beast, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. Not just that. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend... When I return, I will repay you. Jesus asked, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who had fallen into the robber's hands? And they said, the one who showed mercy on him. Go and do the same, Jesus says. This is our goal. Love others enough to actually help them, enough to be weary with them, enough to be tired, enough to maybe take some of that burden, put on your own shoulders, and pull them out of the ditch. The goal is that they're out of sin. Not just that we confront them or point out their sin. And we got to be willing to do all that's necessary. Multiple Bible meetings, praying for them, coming before the Lord, asking God to restore them. Calls, text messages, all in love, all motivated by the fact that you want to see them come back to Christ and come back to community. And you guys have this responsibility to each other. All, all of you to each other. Alright, how is this accomplished? So, who's responsible? Well, all of us that are walking by the Spirit. What's the goal? Restoration. The goal is that they would be restored to Christ and restored to community. How is this accomplished? Let's talk a minute about tact, your approach. You say, Morgan, I'm ready. 
I'm ready to bear burdens. I've got shoulders like an ox. I'm in Radix, TC, discipled by the senior staff. You may be walking by the Spirit. You may be motivated by love. You may really want them restored. How do you do it? Well, let's look at chapter uh, 5, verse 22. Uh, sorry, 5, verse 26. Here's, some, here's the approach. Here's the approach to this. First of all, let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Look at verse 3. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. First of all, your approach must be humble. That's pretty clear in this text. Humble. Let us not become boastful. And if anyone thinks himself, uh, when thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Your approach must be humble. Listen to me. If there's any ounce of pride in your restoration, it will fail. <laughs> It will fail. Sorry, you will fail. <laughs> you will fail. There's one way you can fail. Either you fail and fall into the same sin. That's what this passage warns against. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Or you'll fail in the mission entirely because pride and arrogance is ugly. And people who are confronted in pride and arrogance don't like it. You don't like it. Nobody else likes it. So let's talk about the first one. Either you will first fail in your pride and fall into the same sin. He, Paul's warning here. Pride comes before a fall. That's scripture's warning. Paul's warning here is don't be proud to think that you will never stoop so low as to fall in the same sin. You've got to be careful when you're pulling somebody out of the ditch that you don't fall into it with them. Then you're both toes. You've got to be very watchful, vigilant, guarding your heart, softening your heart before the Lord. Knowing that when you're about to talk to somebody, engage with somebody who's in sin, that you want to guard your heart and be protective that you don't fall into the same sin. And it's not a prideful thing, like I'm better than you, so I'm protecting. It's a very humble thing before the Lord for you to be, you to be watchful of that. Never think yourself too high that you would never stoop so low. Also, pride and arrogance will immediately compromise your mission. It's going to immediately compromise it. Because remember, the goal is not confrontation. It's not to make yourself look better than the other person. Not to appear more spiritual or godly. Because the person you're confronting will sniff pride out the second they see it. She doesn't really care about me. This is just to boast her, or boost her ego and give her gossip to talk about. She's been talking about it with all her friends. He doesn't really care about me. He just wanted to point it out and make himself look better than me. This isn't even a sin issue, and they're over-spiritualizing it to make themselves look more spiritual. You can sense pride. You can see it from a mile away in a person who's, who's confronting you on an issue, and it's just distasteful. It's ultimately unloving. And listen, you could have all the right answers. You could be totally equipped to help them out. You can have the experience, the spiritual maturity, but one condescending comment. One personal preference 
that you're making a biblical issue rather than a preference or a wisdom issue, any disinterest shown in listening to their story or hearing their perspective before jumping into conclusions, all of these things will destroy your mission. It'll destroy your credibility. It will kill trust. It will show them that you are more interested in giving your opinion than helping them get out of their sin. Listen, you could have a quiver full of gifts, experiences, talents, godly wisdom in your, amongst your arrows. You could have life experience amongst your arrows, a great reputation amongst your arrows, Bible knowledge amongst your arrows, but if any of those arrows are shot without love, they all miss. They all miss. Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, listen, I could have all the gifts in the world, prophecy, the gifts of tongue, but if any of it is without love, it's worthless. It's actually a noisy symbol, a clanging, a noisy gong, a clanging symbol. It's distasteful. It's annoying, and it's unaffected. So we just, and Paul laces this section with these warnings. You cannot, you cannot be proud in this endeavor. You cannot be prideful in bearing others' burdens. You cannot be proud in restoring a person out of sin. You have to guard your heart from this. The approach must first be humble. It's got to be humble. It's not a fake humility. It's a genuinely humbleness before the Lord knowing, hey, I'm a sinner just like them. I've fallen in many of ditches. Lord, help me to remember who I am, a saved sinner, by your grace alone, as I help this brother or sister who's also a sinner in need of, need of your grace, in need of your comfort, in need of your son. Number two, your approach must be gentle. It must be gentle. So your approach must be humble. And secondly, it must be gentle. Read verse 1 again. We read it a lot of times. But here it is. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. If you like underlining your Bible, underline that in a spirit of gentleness. It's repeated there. A fruit of the Spirit is what? Gentleness. Paul makes a point here in a spirit of gentleness. I would underline both commands, bear and then restore, and then I would, I would underline in a spirit of gentleness. This is important and it's critically missed. Critically missed. What is gentleness? Well, gentleness is a, is a form of humility in considering others before yourself. Consideration of others. This is, kind of, this is kind of strategic humility. This is tactfulness in your approach. Maybe you should ask questions like this before addressing the issue of sin. What are they going through right now that might affect this issue? What's going on in their lives that might be affecting this? When is the best time to approach them on this? Is it in the middle of the group? Is it after college group? Is it maybe one-on-one -on -one in a coffee? How should I approach the conversation? How should I approach? What's my way in? How can I serve them in that way? How will they receive what I'm saying? Am I using the right words? Are they seasoned with both truth and grace? And by the way, you know where you fall on that spectrum, right? Some of us are truth-driven, where I, I see something that's wrong, and I go, I know the truth. 
that goes right in that hole that you're missing right there. And I'm just going to shove it in, keep shoving it in, keep shoving it in until you hear it. Truth, God. Um, some of you are more are more toward grace where it's like, man, I, 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 I'll let it go. Love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. And then you have this big black monster right in front of you. You're like, love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. And you just don't want to address, you don't want to speak the truth. You have to be balanced. Gentleness is a good balance of those two things. Gentleness flows from a heart of love because you're considering the best for the person in front of you, but it's also extremely practical. It's extremely practical to approach someone gently. I mean, Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. You want to win a debate? You want to win an argument? Just respond gently. And they'll get so frustrated with you because you're, you're not being moved. You're not being stirred up. I had a dog named Buster. And Buster was the worst dog on the planet. Um, Buster ate poop. He ate our chickens. He ate like three of my baseball gloves. And he was mischievous. You know, some dogs like just do those things and they're dumb about it. Like, Ugh. No, Buster knew what he was doing. And he would try to hide like my shoes and my baseball mat. I was so mad at him. Sometimes I would come out of the house. Um, and I was in high school when we had Buster. I would come out of the house with like a bat. And I was just ready to go to war with this dog. I was so mad. Buster, get over here! And I was screaming at him. And what would Buster do when I came out like that? He was gone. Like the back corner of our acre lot. you never see him. Uh, he was just immediately gone with uh, my tone of voice, but I kind of got smart. And I would come out and I'm grit my teeth. He's got my glove, my $300 baseball glove. And I go, Buster, come here, boy. Come here. And I'm trying to hold on. Come here, boy. You got a treat. And I'm like, drawing him in. Come here, come here. Just like the guys in the Pirates of the Caribbean, right? <laughs> drawing him in. And then he, you know, he starts to come slowly. He's like, okay, okay, I'm not in trouble, I'm not in trouble. He'd get close. <laughs> they trap him by the thing. They go to the rest of them on the ground. No, I wouldn't. But, uh, <laughs> but it's just practical. It's just practical. Gentleness, gentleness, just practically gives, gets a way better response. It's, uh, it's just wise. It's, it's, uh, it's, um, I'm, miss, I'm missing the word, but people respond better to gentleness, and it's a considerate of the other person. So maybe ask, ask these questions. Again, these are just different questions you ask. Is it gentle to call someone out in the middle of a group? Is it gentle to say something sharp, but just in passing? You don't, have, you don't have minutes to follow it up. Is it gentle to assume and accuse before listening um, and, and digesting all the information? Is it gentle... To confront someone before praying for them. Settling your heart before the Lord for their good. If you're, and this is a real big one, man. If you're really frustrated with someone because they sinned against you. And, and you know, their sin affects you. And, and, you know, on the one end, you want to forgive. You want to show them Christ's love. But on the other side, you're deeply offended. And you're, you're starting to get angry. And there's this little bit of pride that's kind of swelling. It's good sometimes to just stop and go, Lord, help me. Help me in my pride. Help me with my anger. Help me to love this person uh, despite what they've done to me, despite what they've done to others. Um, praying before confronting someone is always great, uh, great practice. 
Here's the, here's the summary. Humility and gentleness are the most effective approaches, and they're the approaches prescribed by Scripture. Uh, bear one another's burden, or sorry, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Don't think of yourself as something when you're nothing. Don't not become boastful. Here's some final words. Some of you guys may have burdens that you are bearing on your own. You think hard things you're going through, maybe... Um, you know, it could be a variety of things, and, and nobody else is bearing them for you because you're keeping them to yourself. Timothy George, not to be uh, confused with our George, Timothy George says this in his commentary, All Christians have burdens. Our burdens may differ in size and shape. For some, it is the burden of temptation and the consequences of moral failure. For others, it may be a physical ailment or mental disorder or family crisis or lack of employment or a host of other things. But no Christian is exempt from burdens. We all have them. And God does not intend for us to carry them by ourselves in isolation from our brothers and sisters. I just encourage you to open up. Go to a, a, a staff leader. Go to a, a person that you trust and, and just share your burden with them. Make the process easy for them to just bear it with you. To maybe comfort you, to cry with you, to uh, walk you through this in a spirit of gentleness. Uh, this is a great quote. The myth of self-sufficiency is not a mark of bravery, but rather a sign of pride. It really is. It's, it's prideful for you to carry it on your own. John Stott comments on this text, and he says, God com God's comfort was not given to Paul through his private prayer and waiting upon the Lord, but the comfort was given through the companionship of a friend and through the good news which he brought. Human friendship in which we bear one another's burdens, is part of the purpose of God for his people. So we should not keep our burdens to ourselves, but rather seek a Christian friend who will help to bear them with us. Ultimately, we see the perfect fulfillment of this text in Jesus, right? I mean, you could go back up to 522 and see that Jesus was love. Jesus was joy, peace, patience. He was kind. He was good. He was faithful, gentle, had absolute self-control. When he was being spat upon on the cross, he did not revile in return, but he submitted. He, he submit, even despite accusations, despite beatings, all the way to the point of death on a cross and remained uh, dependent upon the Spirit and displaying the fruit of the Spirit all the way. And who restored us? Who bore our burden? Well, Christ. Christ did. Christ restored us from uh, a path of darkness, from the sin that we were entangled in, the, the depths of despair where we were heading in toward hell, an eternity of torment, but Christ pulled us out through his death and resurrection. He saved us by his work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Who bore our burdens? Well, it was Christ who hung on a tree and didn't just experience the physical torment, the pain of physical agony, having the nails driven through his hands and his feet, but he bore the full weight of our sins on the cross. He bore that on Calvary. And he bore it until he said it was finished. And he died and he rose again from the dead, proving victorious. He is the champion who restored us and bore our burdens. And that kind of love, 
that kind of love has to motivate us to love others enough to bear their burdens and to restore them, help restore them from sin. Let me pray and then we'll be done. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd help us be motivated by love, the love that you showed us through Christ. Help us to love others in in the same way, a, a sacrificial way, where we're willing to get dirty, we're willing to be tired, to sacrifice our own comforts, to help others who've fallen in their sins, and to restore them to you, first and foremost, and restore them to fellowship with each other. I pray that we take on this responsibility, all of us, Lord, together. We're, we're part of the church, so we all have this responsibility to each other. I pray we take it seriously, but we'd also take it humbly and gently. We do it in a way that honors you. In Jesus' name, amen. Go